Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on today's podcast, we're going to share an interview that Megan did with Park Cannon, a state representative from House District 58. They talked about this moment that we're in where people are taking to the streets to demand justice for black people in our community who have been mistreated by police. They talk about solutions moving forward, about changes that need to be made. And they also talk about a landmark Supreme Court ruling that happened earlier this week that provides the most extensive protections against discrimination to LGBTQ people in our state and in our country. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Megan's conversation with State Representative Park Cannon. Joining us today on the podcast is Representative Park Cannon from District 58, which covers neighborhoods in Fulton and DeKalb counties. Our listeners might remember Park from when Peach Pod covered the Young Elected's press conference uh, by video a few weeks ago. Park, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. This is amazing. I'm so excited to be talking to you all during Pride Month. Yes. Happy Pride. So let's go ahead and get started with some questions for you. Um, The nation, and in particular Georgia, has been affected by the murders of far too many Black folks at the hands of police, including Ahmaud Aubrey. George Floyd, and Rayshard Brooks, which has spurred a global movement to support Black lives. We've previously covered this on our show, and I know you, Park, have been involved in several demonstrations here in Georgia. What message do you feel demonstrators are sending following these murders, and how do you hope that message is received by our state and local leaders? Quite concisely, we know that this is the people's uprising. And the people's uprising is happening because there are not areas covered that help people lead healthy and thriving lives in Georgia. We know that we have to be mindful of the emotions as well as the lived experiences of people who are uprising right now. But we also have to juxtapose that raw reality with concrete action. And so the people's uprising is about the need and an immediate need for justice, whether that is electoral justice, judicial justice reproductive justice, and the list goes on. The people are uprising because the time is now for change. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan said on CNN Tuesday morning that he would release a different version of a hate crimes bill, saying of the House bill that he didn't want his legacy to be that he supported the weakest hate crimes bill in the country. What do you know about the lieutenant governor's amended bill? And do you think that the Senate's version will have trouble passing the House? What I know about the Senate's seriousness as it relates to this incredibly monumental issue is that the leadership is stalling. They are working as diligently as they can to bring oppressive ideologies into a bill 
on oppressing people based on an ideology. We are clear. The bill that came out of the House back in March deserves to be swiftly passed without amendment and signed by the governor because hate lives here in Georgia. As a person who has firsthand experienced a hate crime when I was in college, some individuals came to my dorm room door and started knocking on it. My dorm room door had a peephole, so I watched them. And as I didn't come to the door, they started banging and they banged louder. And finally, when they left and I opened my door, they had ripped down all of my magnets on my door and written the N-word multiple times over and over. This is 2010. So there is no question as to how important it is to pass the version of the hate crime bill that we have currently. But the seriousness with which the Senate is taking it is not felt and is not being shown in these first two days of the 11 total legislative days. And so it is our hope in the House of Representatives to stand with the public in calling for the Georgia State Senate to swiftly call up and pass House Bill 426 instead of writing an entirely new bill that has not been vetted by community leaders and communities in need. So in short, well, first of all, I want to say that I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Um, hate crimes are horrifying, horrifying events. To, so to follow up on on this conversation, in short, do you think that this statement and these moves by Lieutenant, the Lieutenant Governor are ploys to try to sink the bill? What I would guess and what I would welcome others to speculate on is the impact that it will have if we allow another white man with power to use oppressive ideology to stop the hate crimes bill. And there are plenty of wild ideas that we could put out there, but I'm pretty sure, like you, <laughs> Megan, we live in reality mm -hmm. and we don't have time for the Senate to not take this seriously. Our lives and our well being are in the balance. And so their continued suppression of this bill is nothing new, even though the public is more acutely aware of it. This same strategy has been used since March. So let's talk about some more legislative items. Last week, the leader of your caucus, Representative Bob Trammell, 
unveiled the caucus's Justice for All agenda. It includes a proposal that you sponsored establishing a use of force database, as well as policies tied to prohibiting no-knock warrants, requiring body cameras, reform for prosecutors, and repeals of citizens arrest and stand your ground, which are both directly related to the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Would you please highlight what you feel are the most important components of this package? Thank you. Certainly House Bill 636 is one of the justice for all legislative measures that we are thrilled to remind our colleagues and the public that we have already introduced. Um, I'm looking forward to reminding people about what happens when we are successful in creating a use of force database. What will happen in that instance is we will be able to look side by side with an incident that happens in North Georgia to an incident that happens in South Georgia and see some of the same tactics that are used and that seem and are proven to be excessive, whether that renders someone paralyzed, whether that adds additional harm to other individuals, or whether someone actually is killed. And so when we are able to specify our legislation a bit more to bring justice to community members by creating a database that is publicly accessible, we will succeed. Right now, we are still in the process of editing our bill and talking to the committee chairs about how we could move forward with something like this in the state of Georgia. In the meantime, we are adding new bills from our Justice for All package to some of the docket that we have already introduced. And so one of the newer pieces of legislation that we just signed today and another one that we just signed yesterday are to repeal citizens arrest and to deal with the issue of official immunity. I am proud to have joined Representative B. Wynn, Representative Renita Shannon, as they take a far step out from our backwards justice system in Georgia to show the South how much of a model Georgia can be. And with, in totality, the other pieces of legislation that we're including like reducing the ability for no-knock warrants, ending racial profiling, requiring body cameras for law enforcement agencies, removing chokeholds from the ability to detain someone, and repealing stand your ground, we will make some progress. And we hope that the public will hold us accountable so that we can hold our colleagues accountable for passing the justice for all legislative package. I want to pause for a second and ask you, go back to the question, the thing that you brought up about official immunity, uh, which I've also heard uh, called qualified immunity. 
that's not something that we talk about a whole lot on this podcast. And I was wondering if you might elaborate on what that actually entails. Certainly, just as we saw here in the state of Georgia last year, we had a piece of legislation that would actually allow for people to sue the state and for the state to not have immunity from the claims of its sovereign people via sovereign immunity. But the governor vetoed it. And so we have had to look at other states and federal precedents on the issue of not being able to be held accountable for immunity based on who you are. And so we have been learning from the Supreme Court cases as well as the Supreme Court case that was not heard on yesterday, as we hoped, that this is an issue, the issue of official immunity that covers how law enforcement officers can be held accountable while in their official role. Now, if you talk to a local sheriff or an agency that does law enforcement, they believe that they hold themselves accountable. And so they are not, even by the smallest stretch of it, interested in there being oversight and or accountability from another area of the society. So we are hopeful to start opening this conversation in the state of Georgia about police officers being able to do and say what they want because we believe that we would be one of the court cases that would make it to the Supreme Court. And we will be implicated in this issue because of the way policing is in Georgia. So official immunity is a very important conversation for justice reform in Georgia because it is one of the most overarching ways to achieve police accountability. Yes. Um, so you started to answer this um, in the previous, in the question before the last one, and I want to kind of really dig into it a little bit. Do you think the entire justice for all agenda goes far enough for Georgia? And how do you think Georgia would look from a social justice perspective as compared to other states if this entire agenda were to pass? Wow, I'm so excited to think about the swift passage of all of these bills. And I, I envision, you know, a place where courts are not full of people of color. Courts are places where people can go to just receive resolution on a little tiny issue. I additionally know that the relations between the community and law enforcement officials is so fractured in this moment that these types of legislation would humanize law enforcement officers and possibly return them to their original oaths to protect and serve. We know 
in other municipalities across the country and in other jurisdictions of the United States, those who are in law enforcement can be enforcing laws of humanity, laws of help your neighbor, laws of, you know, keep your trash picked up or I'll come and remind you, laws of remind the people who you are the closest to, to do and be good neighbors. But instead, here in Georgia, we see the divide between the law enforcement officers and the community to be so wide that there's so much lost in translation in those communications, and many times they end up fatal. Mm -hmm. So we're hopeful that even if the justice for all package is not swiftly implemented, that it is setting the lowest level of where our conversation, once we flip the house in 2020, where it will go. Yes. So you already touched on a couple of the things that I'm going to bring up in the next question. Um, key to a broader reform agenda that has been pushed by activists this week, um, the key has been shifting funding away from police functions and toward public programs that seek to ensure people have their basic needs met, like housing, healthcare, and nutrition, and to reduce the role of law enforcement in dealing with the effects of poverty. Does that framework describe the kinds of policy changes you'd like to see under the Gold Dome? And in a concrete sense, what does that really look like? Um, should we have a new vision for who serves as a first responder? And what kind of programs do we need to prevent poverty in the first place? You know, I love this question because it feels very futuristic. It feels very millennial. It feels very um, hopeful. And it is something that we are piloting right here in Atlanta. Right now in District 58, we have a local partnership with Atlanta police to divert people from being arrested. And this pre-arrest diversion program is an example of how our state can do this statewide because we have so many law enforcement agencies in Georgia, which means we have so many people who can help to divert people from going to jail. And what we have seen in our pre-arrest diversion program right here that is carried out by police officers is that it helps police officers reduce their negative interactions with people who are affected by poverty, people who are skeptical of how they might be received, people who simply have had bad experiences in the past, but might be able to turn this corner and see a police officer working in the community, playing basketball, bringing resources, not extracting, not being a vulture, not taking people, not hunting people. How different would it be if the state of Georgia 
because of the policies passed by the Gold Dome, helped us to prevent poverty in the first place. And I'm excited to be a part of a group of legislators who are shifting our priorities away from cops, having to be the law enforcement officials who only care about order, but to actually be law enforcement that care about the people. And I know that this will take law enforcement officers to be at the table and liaisons to provide adequate training for them. But I do think that any law enforcement officer in America right now is curious about the world that their children or family members or future generations are going to live in. And it is up to them to come to the table with solutions on what's not working and what they can do to fix it. Exactly. So let's talk for a minute about budget. Because budget is related to pretty much everything that we've talked about in this conversation so far. Um, As you mentioned, there are 11 days left in the legislative session. Well, there were. We are on day two. We're recording on Tuesday evening. Um, And we, the the legislature has to pass a budget. Um, Georgia still spends less per person than we did before the Great Recession in 2008. We're entering another budget crisis caused by the pandemic's impact on the state's economy. In these last 11 days, are they likely to be dominated by this discussion? And how would you like the legislature to address the budget challenges that the state is facing? Well, the budget and balancing it is a legislator's sole role. So any members of the General Assembly who are not all hands on deck to try to minimize the impact of the 11% reduction totaling $2.8 billion, well, then they're not leading the people to where we need to be. Right now, it is very clear to us that education, community health, transportation, and early care learning are on the chopping block. We know that we have outstanding debt obligations. We know that we have opportunities to take federal emergency funding. And we know that one of the easiest ways to bring financial and health relief to Georgians is to expand Medicaid. So some of the conversations have started to speed up because of this 11% cut moment, but other conversations are longstanding. And I want us in the state of Georgia to get to a place where we have sustainable funding so that children won't experience an entire lifetime 
in their schooling of budget cuts for the students who were just entering school in 2008 when the recession happened in 2009. Those students to this day are about to graduate and it's saddening to feel as though our students have fewer educational opportunities, our hospitals are closing, but yet our corrections budget is barely being touched and yet Confederate monuments are still being protected. And so I'm hopeful that with these proposed reductions, I can help our state leverage CARES Act funding and we can get the remainder covered by revenue sources and not have such a dire impact on Georgians as our budget starts on July 1st. And today we stand here the middle of June. I want to bring our conversation back to a national level with this next question. What do you think about SCOTUS's landmark ruling that prohibits discrimination against gay and transgender people in the workplace, especially given that the first Trump appointee to the Supreme Court, Justice Neil Gorsuch, wrote the majority opinion? And what do you think the next steps are to protect LGBTQ rights? Well, today we take a moment to recognize and celebrate the United States Supreme Court's decision. We want protections for LGBTQI plus community members. And there's no question that this marks the most sweeping legal protections for trans communities in Supreme Court history. It was legal to fire us for being lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, gender nonconforming, and more in more than half of the U.S. states. And unfortunately, Georgia is one of those. So here in Georgia, we are taking this proud pride moment and telling everyone about it and finding a bit of joy and relief in this victory that our fight for justice is somehow picking up speed. But we know that it's far from over. You know, the very fact that one of the cases within the Supreme Court case was from Georgia, from Clayton County. And because it's so close to home, it is important that all Georgians continue through the month of June and beyond to stand clearly that the presented cases, Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, Altitude Express versus Zarda, RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC, that with our advocacy, with our working to advance fairness and safety and opportunity for LGBTQ Georgians, that we are a part of the modern day civil rights movement. And that is something to be proud of. 
I agree. Um, as you know, I am also a member of the LGBTQ community and I did a major happy dance when their uh, decision came out as well as then also, you know, thought about the things that it changed and the things that we could continue to change. So um, it's, it's very also fitting that it came out during Pride Month, I feel. So to wrap us up, I want to ask you about intersectionality. We are seeing some really great examples of it and some really poor examples of intersectionality as we proceed through Pride Month and as the movement for protecting and valuing Black lives continues. Other than what we've already discussed in our conversation, what do you think we could do better as a nation to support Black folks and LGBTQ folks? And do you think intersectionality belongs in this movement or in this moment? Or do you think these issues should be approached separately? I don't think it's pride if it's not intersectional. I want my Southern fried queer pride. Mm -hmm. I want people's ability to be in the trans community, also in the lesbian community, and also understanding of Black lives to be at the table. And the reason because that that is so important is because we don't walk into the room and leave ourselves behind unless we are being oppressed. I want Georgia to be a place where we can be flamboyant if that's who we are, or we can be a judge because that's who we are. And these, you know, decisions that are being made to affirm our bodies to understand our voices and to uplift our triumphs are really important. Right now in Georgia, it is very important that we dig deep and get to know our community for who we really are. That'll be the only way that we will be able to lead as sustainable of a movement as what started in New York in 1969 with the Stonewall riots. And the last thing I'll say about intersectionality is it's not always easy to identify with one uh, group or your own self. Sometimes that self-identification process it comes out of trauma or tragedy or need. It doesn't always come out of freedom and desire. We know that our intersectional lives lead us to bust out of the box in some unconventional ways. So I tip my hat to all of the fun folks who are out here in our beautiful rainbow community. I wish you could see me today at the state capitol. I wore a full head-to-toe rainbow dress and spoke in the well and will continue to be out and proud of LGBTQ acceptance and equity here in Georgia. I love it. I, I love that that you are so passionate about representing the LGBTQ community and keeping it intersectional. So Park, if we want to hear more from you, where can we find you? Well, the fun part 
about COVID-19 bringing everyone online was that we have really started to streamline our social media interactions and have learned new ways to engage with our community. So you can find us on our stories, in our posts, in our events, as well as in some groups that are on Facebook, as well as Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Now, what I'll say about the TikTok is that it takes so much effort for you to be able to put a video and then add a GIF and then add the text and then bring the audio and then add a song and then shorten the text. So we only have three posts, but we look forward to putting out some more content there that you can enjoy that will help you get out and vote in the August 11th runoff in the November 3rd election. Park, Representative Park Cannon, thank you so much for coming on. It has been great to have you. You are so welcome. Thank you as well. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.